few months ago, I was uh, walking across um, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and it just struck me how incredible this, uh, this building was, this construction. 37 acres. It's huge. I, I'm quite surprised. I, I've tried, did a quick bit of digging. Uh, very often, you know, when you're preparing for a, a Sunday, uh, you think, oh, that, that, that's actually really quite an interesting uh, bit of uh, information. So you start on the Google trail, and you th I'll, I'll have a look at that, and I'll have a look at that, and you think, there's a point at which you say, I'm not going any further, I can't find the information, we're just going to have to speculate. But I'm, I was looking at this Temple Mount and thought, this is incredible. Why isn't it, or why wasn't it, uh, considered one of the wonders of the world? It can't be one of the seven wonders of the world, of course, because there was seven already. Why wasn't there eight wonders of the ancient world? Uh, so if you know, let me know at the end, please. I'm fascinated. It's absolutely colossal. There's something else that's very interesting about it. What continues is, is if you like, the, the challenge of ownership. Right in the central part, the, the, the location uh, where the temple was, there's a shrine uh, over the stone where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. That's amazing. of the storyline of the Bible, right the way through, a Muslim shrine. And uh, there's um, the, the, a significant part of the, um, the Temple Mount is under Muslim control. Free access, however, uh, and while we were up there, while we were just uh, wandering around having a look, uh, a group of uh, teenagers, Jewish teenagers, late teenagers, uh, decided that they were going to march through the Muslim-controlled area, uh, and they were going to, if you like, chant uh, Jewish, um, Jewish uh, freedom songs and all the rest of it. And it was just an, a, another moment which... For a few minutes, it just reminded me of the kind of challenge and the problem that centered in this place. They were surrounded by uh, armed soldiers, um, these teenagers, as they marched through. And it was, all, there was, it was tense. You could feel the tension uh, as they marched through the Muslim-controlled area. It just reminded me of the of this location. What we see now is not as it always had been. In AD 70, there was a cataclysmic change in Jewish history. The Romans came, and uh, because of various uprisings uh, in the Israel, Palestinian-Israeli area, the Romans came in, and they took siege of the city, and they finally dealt with the issue. Titus, who was the son of Vespasian, Emperor Vespasian, led the charge uh, on the Temple Mount. Now, uh, by all accounts, it seems as though at that moment in time, there was no intention, there was no desire to destroy the Temple. Rather, there was a desire to take captive the Temple. However, what happened is an enthusiastic um, attacker threw a firebrand into some wood which 
lit up the temple walls and, and the temple started burning and there was resulting carnage. The historian Philip Schaff puts it like this. He said, as, uh, apologies for the slightly gruesome bit, but it gives you a picture of what was going on. As the legions charged in, neither persuasion nor threat could check their impetuosity. Passion alone was in command. Crowded together around the entrance, many were trampled by their friends. This is the Roman attackers. Many were trampled by their friends. Many fell among the still hot and smoking ruins of the colonnades and died as miserably as the defeated. As they neared the sanctuary, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's commands and urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The partisans were no longer in a position to help. Everywhere was slaughter and flight. Most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, butchered wherever they were caught. Round the altar, the heaps of, round the altar, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood, and the body of those killed at the top slid to, slithered to the bottom. That is gruesome, isn't it? At the same time, it's precisely what was spoken about in the Old Testament. This is going to happen. It's going to come a time when you would wish, Jesus said as well, that the mountains would fall on top of you. There is going to be an incredible moment. Following on from that, this amazingly holy place is, is sacked by the Romans and all of the treasures of the temple were taken. The sacred vessels, the table on which the bread of God's presence had been put, the menorah, the curtain and all the other objects that nobody except the high priest was allowed to see were carried through the Roman streets. They took them back and they paraded them through Rome as an indication of their victory over these unruly Jews. It was a massively significant moment. All the way through the Old Testament, there has been a recurring theme of the idea of the significance of the presence of God with his people. As they came out of Egypt, God said, I am effectively going to call you to build a mobile temple. It was the tabernacle. And when that tabernacle was completed, th there was a moment where what's described as the Shekinah glory, the glory of God in a cloud, came down over the tabernacle and, and if you like, in, in emblematic terms, the presence of God was with his people. And then that repeated again when Solomon finally com completed the building of the first temple in Jerusalem. As the first temple was completed, 2 Chronicles, the same, 2 Chronicles 7, the same thing happened. It says this, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. There's something massively significant about the temple. And Luke gets that. Luke understands the significance of the temple. In fact, Luke, he bookends his account to Theophilus 
with, with accounts of the temple. He's got the temple at the beginning, and he's got the temple at the end weaved into the storyline. Why? Because the temple is fantastically, you cannot use words big enough to describe the significance of the temple. I hadn't really got that. I'd kind of, you know, I'd read about it. I'd, I'd, I'd understood it in my head, but I'd never really got it until while we were um, being shown around, there was a, a tourist video which, which showed a film of what it was like for um, a young Hebrew man to leave his village hundred or so miles away and to travel down to the temple and to bring his sacrifice to the temple. And it was brilliantly done. It was really excellent, it's pre the presentation. That moment of awe as he looks out at the temple sees it for the first time. This significant, massive building. The glory of God's people in Israel. Uh, and then all around the, the steps of the bottom of the steps of the temple were a huge number in, in relative terms. 20, 30 purification um, uh, baths. That's the word I'm looking for, baths. Purification baths. I, I'd never really twigged on that. How did they baptize 3,000 people in one day? They used the baths that were all there. And it was really quick. And, and they could get through hundreds and hundreds of people purifying themselves, ready for the temple. And they arrived at the and he arrives at the temple with his, his sacrifice. And it is a massively significant moment. And Luke gets that. And he wants to describe to, to Theophilus, he wants to say, firstly, Jesus in his life was absolutely connected to the temple. And he gives two, if you like, stories, little uh, cameos of the life of Jesus and the temple before his ministry. In fact, they're the only two little accounts that give us an indication of what it was like for Jesus before he was baptized and he, he carried on in his ministry for the next three years. One is when he's taken to the temple um, by his parents, and one is when he's in the temple 12 years later. And in chapter 2, as we've seen, we've, we've got the initial bit, which we haven't read, which is uh, about the events of, uh, of Mary and Joseph arriving in, in Bethlehem, Jesus being born, if you like the Christmas story, and then we go on, and Luke decides, I then want to tell you two temple events in the life of Jesus. Two temple events. The first one is significant. We see Mary and Joseph, they arrive at the temple. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So they take Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I confess that when I've read that, each Christmas, since I was, I don't know how tall, not very, not very tall now, mind you, but there you go, um, when I was really very small, um, I just thought, oh yeah, just, just kind of, you know, 
drop down to the temple, do the purification, get it out of the way, then we can get on with life. But actually going there and seeing the significance, getting a feel for how massively important this location was, how, how much glory and majesty, what it The temple was going on in the ordinary life of God's people. Now, we, we kind of, those of us who look at the issues of the but before that, it's just temple life. Ordinary life. Ordinary, committed, temple life. This young fam family, I, I think we could say, as we look at this little cameo, we can see that Jesus was born into a family which observed Offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That gives us a little, another this little picture, I want, I want you to just for a moment get into the mindset of this couple. Consecrated to God. They're saying this child that has been born, we present before God, we commit to God, we set aside for God, we believe that this is a, a, an indication of the continuation of our family line to the God who we've worshipped. That's what they were saying. It's as though they're saying, right, okay, we acknowledge that we belong to the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Down through the years, all of the firstborn of our families has been consecrated to the Lord as an identification that's this family want that to stay the same. We want to retain that commitment. What does that say between the age of a few days and the rest of his life until he was 30? What does that suggest to us? We don't know, other than we know what happens when he was 12. But what we do know is that the environment that Jesus grew up in is an environment which is committed to faithful living. I find that fascinating. Regular sacrifices, regular observance of the Passover, all of the means 
that God has provided for his people for the resolution of the the one who actually didn't need all of that grew up observing it. You know, I think very often, uh, I think that our history and our to rule over us so that they become bigger than the truth that is in them. Uh, and then we reach a point where we say, I want to get rid of that because actually the life of Jesus in my life needs to live and breathe and have relevance to the day that I live in. But there is a danger with that as well. And you could use the old adage, we can throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because what we can lose sight of is our connectedness. And that's key. As we move forward as a church, one of the things that I think is desperately important for us to retain is our recognition that we are connected. When we sing songs that are written today, that's great. That's marvelous. But we are actually singing songs in the same way as our forefathers and generations back and generations back and decades and millennia back. We are part of the, the people of God who have a recognition of where we belong. I think that's the great challenge. Sometimes we twist it upside down and we say, how can obedience to God look like something I enjoy? <laughs> and that is just the wrong way around. What we need is to be saying, how can obedience to God be faithfully demonstrated in a way which is real in my life today? That means... And I'll use me as an example. <laughs> it means that I do not feel any urge whatsoever to wear a black cloak and a white winged shirt as I preach. No, you would think I looked completely nuts if I did that in this location. But if I ever feel as though I don't see the relevance of proclaiming God's message, then I am losing the heart. Do you see the difference? Jesus grew up in an environment which was observing, holding, claiming true faithfulness to God. What that as the story continues, the foundation that Luke places for us is that we don't get confused 
When Jesus starts to challenge the religious elite, when Jesus starts to challenge certain practices in the temple, when the whole story is subverted later on, it's not because he hates the temple. It's not because he hates the temple. It's because he says all that it was purpose to do has reached its completion. It's done its job. It's not that I hate it and I want to turn it over. Jesus wasn't creating a new movement. He was creating a continuation of God's message for this world. That's what it was all about. So during his life, all of those aspects of temple life were absolutely fundamental to Jesus. See that in the life of his parents. Perfect faith in the obedience of that. But we also see prophecy. In the place of God's God's voice, God's presence. We see this man Simeon who's been promised something. Spirit of God has said, you will not die before you see the consolation of Israel. That means the promised one. The one that God has always said. The one that becomes our consolation. The one that becomes our consoling. Our help. You're not going to die, Simeon, until you see that. He went to the temple courts the day that Mary and Joseph arrived. That would indicate that he, was, he wasn't always there. It would indicate that he was brought to the temple at that moment in time. And it's almost like the converging of two separate groups who didn't know each other. And then at that very moment, Mary and Joseph with Jesus are right in front of him and that's it. He knows that this is it. This is the consolation of Israel. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Imagine what that must have been like. You've taken your son to go through a normal process. Not every, not every child that gets taken to the temple gets grabbed by somebody and prophecy is spoken in this incredible way. But that's what happened for them. And as they heard it, they marveled. You see that? They, look, they think, that's a spine-tingling moment. But prophecy is made over Jesus at the location where God speaks. It's interesting, isn't it? Picture of the temple. They marvel. We'll come back in a minute to what he says. What they say later. Or rather, what he says later. The next little window that we see is Jesus himself in the temple. You see, if the first one is about the faithful God awareness of the par parents, the next little picture, the next little window, is about the self-awareness of Jesus. The self-awareness of Jesus. The first is the awareness of the parents. 
The second is the self. rather than a, a walk with the kids. Um, where is our son? Dash back to Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple. They went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts. That must have just been an insane period of time, a frantic period of time. And that's precisely what Luke is ratcheting up. He's creating this tension as we read the narrative, this, this moment of tension in the parents as they're, they're getting more and more distraught, more and more concerned. We can relate to it. We can see the issue. They're looking at it, thinking, where's our son? Where's our son? And Jesus is totally relaxed in the temple. There was a moment years ago, I won't say which one, but one of our boys went missing. It wasn't for three days. It was for half an hour. I was frantic. I was dashing around this um, amusement place that we were in, this amusement park. There was kids everywhere. He wasn't quite as pious because he wasn't at the temple. But he was just totally chill in the ball pit. Just totally relaxed. No problem. I'm relaxed. No, what are you worried about, Dad? It's okay. Is that all that we're, we're supposed to see in this? The kind of contrast? Well, no. It's way more than that. It's not about losing Jesus and finding him again. Actually, the contrast that Luke is making is Jesus has this moment where he is self-describing what he sees as home. Because after all, they're on their way home. Aren't they? Family, they're on their way home. And Jesus responds in verse 48, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be?
amazed at the questions he asks, and they are amazed at the answers he gives. 20 years later, I think it is entirely possible that some of those very same scribes and teachers of the law would have been in the temple when Jesus was making the most remarkable statements. I wonder, I wonder whether any of them remember. Jesus could have been he was causing a stink. All sorts of chaos with what undoubtedly all sorts of investigations going on. Who is this Jesus? We know that they say he's, a, he's the son of a carpenter. We know that Joseph and Mary would have been identified as the far, as the father and the mother of Jesus. I wonder whether any of those same scribes who were there on this event cast their minds back. He's here as a 12-year-old kid in the manger. He's not changed anything. He's still in the manger. What went from a maiden becomes from a great his true father. At that stage, Jesus didn't suddenly get it at 33. 30, rather. He didn't suddenly, oh, I see who I am. There is an awareness, there is a self-awareness in Jesus of who he is. He knows where his home is. He knows his father's house. He's actually saying something which in human terms for that day was, was it could have been taken because the description of God as Father was, was certainly something that was known and understood. But it was borderline of whether it was heartwarming or incredible blasphemy. It was definitely on the edge. The idea of Father as God is something that is certainly established in the Old Testament. But Jesus saying it as a 12-year-old in such a, an outrageous way is something incredible. And here we see Jesus declaring both his relationship to the Father and the authority that he has as he speaks God's word. Then we read from Chronicles where there's the presence of God. That, that temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. It was, it was sacked and it was rebuilt under the, uh, under the order of uh, Ezra. And that temple was rebuilt. That's the temple that Jesus is at. That event didn't happen again. <laughs> but here's the presence of God in his temple. 
at that early life. In fact, Luke weaves the story of the temple into the life of Jesus from here on in, right the way through. Simeon says something which, if you like, takes this moment and it throws it right the way forward into our experience today. Simeon says, as he concludes this great prophecy of who Jesus is, he says this, Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, <laughs> I think that's, a, that's almost, almost a kind of, he blesses them and then he says this, that's almost the way it, it's described. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Thanks, Simeon. This is no ordinary child. Jesus is going to create to create the division in our gathering this afternoon where there will be some who will say, I know who he is. When he said he is in his father's house, I believe him to be no less than the son of God present in this world and I believe that he is my savior. And there will be others, I guess, who will say, this Jesus is interesting, but that's as far as it goes. And that is the moment of division. What we hear about as Jesus is declared at the age of a few days that he is going to be the divider of Israel. That is exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. He becomes the very point by which the whole of Israel decides one way or the other. To be a follower of Jesus as the promised Messiah or not. And Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. I, I, I can't even begin. Can't even begin to enter in to what it must have been like for by this stage, widow Mary to be watching her son Jesus nailed to a cross. But it was not a surprise. Imagine living the whole of your life watching your son grow up, knowing that there is going to be something as it unfolded. Why? Because there are no surprises in Jesus' life. Because as we saw last week, all that God declares is going to come to pass. It's going to happen. 
We're going to close with one thought. And really, Luke invites the question. And he invites the question of Theophilus. Remember we said last week, one of the interesting things that Luke does is he doesn't, he doesn't narrate and then explain. He doesn't give any real sort of picture of what's going on. He just tells it as it is. What we see about Jesus, uh, what we see about um, Mary and Joseph, we see in verse 50, we read this. After Jesus replies to them and says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Father's house, that sounded very Liverpool. That was, you know, sorry, we're in, we're in Yorkshire now, okay. Um, <laughs> he goes on to say this. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. It's almost as though Luke is saying, Theophilus, they didn't understand. What do you think? When they didn't understand who Jesus was, when they didn't understand what Jesus was saying, when they were just What's he going on about, Father's house? Let's just get home. Marveled at what was going on, but not understanding. The invitation is, Luke saying, Theophilus, I invite you. Do you understand what this was all about? See, they had, they had reason not to understand because they didn't have the whole story. That's one of the challenges of working through a narrative when we all know the end. You know, we've all read the last few pages of this story, haven't we? But the question's there. Because we know the whole story, do you understand what Jesus was saying? Because the implication in understanding is, do you agree with what Jesus was saying? I think that, that's, that just stands for us today, doesn't it? Are we certain? Do we see that and we say yes? Or do we need to continue to say, tell me more? I want to encourage you to do one of two things. I want you to encourage you either, if you're able to say yes, to go away worshipping God. Because the Son of God, the presence of God, was in his temple. And if you don't understand and know and fully are convinced of that, I want to encourage you to continue to come along and to continue to dig and to continue to understand and ask the questions so that you might be certain.